Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast. Coming up, mixing vaccines. What do you do with kids who haven't been vaccinated? More graves found at the site of a former residential school. How much do we tip post-pandemic? It's coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I am technical producer Will Erskine, not Scott's son. Great news, Canada. Over 50% of us have had our second shot of the COVID-19 vaccine. Just like toilet paper, it's available everywhere now. So get yours. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. (laughs) Nothing like changing it up, uh, especially when you have to. You know, things are opening up. Where the hell did the kids go? Where's everybody gone? (sighs) Kurt took off to a friend's house, isn't answering his phone. Uh, I said to Alicia, she's walking out the door. Hey, can you do my intro? Uh, No, I got a haircut appointment. Well, I ain't going to argue with that, especially with my daughter. Uh, anyway, good afternoon, and thank you, Will. Good job. Good afternoon. It is 1211. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Jump into the fun. We would love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. Send us a note via the website, Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right. Uh, as you heard uh, yesterday, World Health Organization uh, commenting. Now, they were commenting on booster shots and vaccine shopping, and uh, and the World Health Organization's top scientists said, you know, there's no um, real evidence. And, and I think by that, and I don't want to talk too much about this because we're going to bring the doctor on. Uh, this is in regard to the testing that has been done by the manufacturers, uh, as opposed to ongoing testing, which we're seeing uh, happening in Germany, the UK and Spain and such, who have been doing this and are following it and are studying it. So let's bring in Dr. Omar Khan, assistant professor of the Institute of Bio- uh, Biomedical Engineering and Department of Immunology with the University of Toronto and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well. Thanks, Scott. All right. Your thoughts on uh, the announcement coming out from the World Health Organization yesterday and your reaction to it? It's really what they have to say. It's very similar to what manufacturers say. Now, the World Health Organization is in a special position because it's meant to act as a regulatory body for countries that don't have things like Health Canada or the FDA. So they get manufacturer data, all their clinical trial data, all their safety data, and then they license it based on that data. Now, no manufacturer really was testing their vaccine with a competitor's vaccine. That didn't happen. So based on the data they have in hand, they can't really extrapolate much beyond that. So from their perspective as a regulatory body, it's very difficult for them to say that, hey, we think this is okay. Now, there are trials being done not by the manufacturers, but, for example, Public Health England. They are mixing vaccines. They are looking at the immunogenicity. They're looking at the safety. So the work is being done, but it's not by the manufacturers or at the same scale as those those large original clinical trials. So this is kind of what they have to say because they can't really say more than the data they have in hand. And as you pointed out, Omar, the data that they have in hand is from the manufacturer. And it would seem very odd from my standpoint, someone who doesn't know a lot about this, where one manufacturer would be testing their product along with another manufacturer. That sort of thing just doesn't happen uh, with manufacturers, does it? 
That's correct. It, it doesn't happen. And that's why we rely on places, for example, like Public Health England, who are doing those studies, and even Spain and Germany, and they'll look into that because they're looking at their risk-benefit. They're looking at their population and seeing, for example, Delta spiking. We really need to get vaccines out here. What's a way we can do this so we can see a better fall, a better September? How can we get two doses? Can we mix? Let's check it out. Why didn't the World Health Organization make that clear yesterday? I think it is fairly uh, clear if you know what they do and that sort of thing. But I think they also want to maintain an appropriate relationship with the manufacturers because manufacturers, as part of this partnership with the World Health Organization, World Health Organization asks them for ongoing data all the time, and they are supplying it to maintain their licensure. And that's really what we want to see happen. We want to see that good communication, that good flow of data between the two of them, because it's a really important part of our global health strategy. So they can't really put their manufacturer in an awkward position by saying, hey, mix it, and then maybe something goes wrong. Who's responsible? Vaccine maker A, vaccine maker B, World Health Organization. That just gets really sticky. And they did uh, somewhat wa- uh, walk this back and, 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 and reaffirmed that you should be listening to your local health authority on these issues. Absolutely. And, and I think that's the really most important part, because what they're trying to say is that you always defer to your local health unit. They will tell you what to do. It's not the individual. And, and again, this is what we struggle with Canada here. It's, you're not making this decision on your own. You're, you're asking your doctor for help, and you're looking to the regulatory boards to give you information. And that's really what they're trying to prevent. We don't want people to just vaccine shop randomly. It, it should really be based on your country. Maybe it doesn't have an FDA or Health Canada, so it has to look to the WHO, and it's getting data from them, and they're doing their best based on that data. And then they can pull in data from places like Public Health England to make a more informed decision. But it's really just a matter of, you know, what could they can say and, and probably more so about liability than anything else. Uh, how many countries, how much mixing is going on of vaccines similar to what Canada is doing? Well, we definitely know that Canada, we're, we're big on it. And uh, England, Spain, Germany, they're all looking at these. And that's the, that's the point of it. And the other issue is, for example, with Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca, some countries don't want to use them anymore. So there are individuals who just can't do it, and they need to mix anyway. So to be an appropriate regulatory body, your public health unit has to look at that because they have to make sure everyone is safely covered. So it's something that a responsible health authority should be doing. And, you know, let's remember this all this all started with a lack of supply, and it was important uh, to get whatever you could when this was in its infancy. Exactly. And let's, let's just look at September schools reopening. You know, we have kids under 12 who won't be vaccinated. And with Delta and perhaps Lambda, they're, they're still vulnerable. They can get infected, probably won't get as sick as very old people, but they can transmit. And that's the issue. So if we really want to have a more normal fall. We need to get people vaccinated in time for that. And that's really what this kind of comes down to. It's sort of like a, a race. We're still in that race to get everybody protected, to get us back to normalcy. But we also have to look at the global outlook. It needs to be stabilized globally. And how can you do that quickly? By appropriately looking at mixing data as well as non-mixing data to see how we can get the whole world out of this because we can't expect stability locally until we've addressed this globally.
Uh, again, uh, the messaging is so critical here, and, and we thank you, Doctor, for clarifying all of this. Um, but, but initially, when this story broke, some said, well, this was taken out of context because they were talking about boosters, not second dose, which to me just even confuses the matter even more, because what's the difference between the second dose and a booster shot? I mean, at the end of the day, uh, one is still going to come after the other, and you, and you are still... Uh, mixing vaccines. However, what is important to learn here is that uh, what the World Health Organization is talking about is the the testing and 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 the research that the individual manufacturers have done, as opposed to countries' health departments who are mixing and matching. Are we going? Is this going to be an issue, say, six months from now, a year from now? Well, here's the hope. We want to slow virus evolution, and you do that by taking down numbers. Vaccination helps. So for us to really get a handle on this and slow the evolution to ensure our current generation of vaccines remain effective, because if it evolves so much that our current vaccines no longer work, we have to go to redevelop them. That's, we don't want to do that. So if we want to keep our current vaccines as effective as possible, we need to get them out, like, as quickly as possible to as many people to really clamp down on this globally. And so going ahead, I think this is a, a lot of what people are considering because we're, we're seeing resurgence in some parts of the world too. And this is not, you know, this is not what you need to get back to normal life, right? You need to stop it as quickly as possible. We can't just let it smolder for too long. Uh, France has ordered all healthcare workers to be vaccinated by the fall. I believe Greece is, is moving towards the same sort of thing. How important is it for healthcare workers uh, to be vaccinated? And do we go to that point? Well, here's one of the really critical points to this. Healthcare workers in long-term care homes, if they're unvaccinated and they can pass on a variant of COVID that you know makes patients sick but not as sick, you know, you have to look at older people. They can tend to get more severe disease from COVID, and that's really what we're trying to prevent. So by having healthcare workers not transmitting, that's really what's important. You want to break the cycle of transmission because with these new variants, you can still get a bit sick even if you're vaccinated. And while you don't get as sick, sick enough to need the ICU, you can still potentially transmit. So you know, everything helps. Vaccination really helps break the cycle of transmission. And that's what we want to avoid. If there's this variant that can still break through a bit through your protection, how does that turn out for older people? Are they once again at risk in, in long-term care homes? And then we have to start looking at the kids. Kids under 12 aren't vaccinated. Are they going to be at greater risk? So this is why anything we can do to break cycle of transmission to vulnerable populations, including very old people, and very young people who are not vaccinated, it's super important. Uh, that was my next question, was uh, obviously one end of the extreme with uh, seniors, the other kids under 12 where uh, it has not been approved, the vaccines have not been approved yet. Any idea when we will hear uh, of that approval for those under 12? And, and, and you know, we're all slowly getting vaccinated. Uh, Canada up over 50% with the second dose, which is phenomenal. Things are opening up, but the kids are not protected. How concerned should we be about that? Well, we do know from clinical data that children tend not to get as sick as older people. So we have to be realistic. Come September, if kids aren't vaccinated, they can still get sick. They tend to not get as sick. So let's remember that. The best way we can protect them is to stop, break the cycle of transmission, 
let's get vaccinated, everyone else. Now, who should worry? Well, everyone should generally be worried and encourage good habits for their kids. But if your child has problems, especially problems with breathing, you know, asthma or something like that, then you want to keep an eye on them. Because remember, people go into the ICU because they have difficulty breathing, they need ventilators. Think about things like that that can really affect uh, your children. So the, that's like an underlying condition. So keep an eye on that. And, and that's really what, that's the important thing. If we look to the U.S., they're, you know, suggesting that people under 12 who aren't vaccinated yet, maybe they need to wear masks in, in, in school still. And, and these are the things that are being considered. And, you know, we have to figure this out for September. A great way to solve a lot of this is to have the bulk of the population vaccinated because that takes off an incredible burden off of everyone. Do you expect uh, these vaccines or any of these vaccines to be improve, approved in kids under 12 by fall? Is that asking too much? Uh, I think we should give the manufacturers enough time to finish those clinical trials appropriately. But here's how it works. It always goes down in age tiers. They looked at safety in the very old group and then keep going younger and younger. So by the time you get to children, there's this this plethora of data on safety from all of these older people. So by the time you get to younger people and like, hey, this is worth from 12 up and it's always been safe, you know, so it's less risky to like look at it in children because all the data says it's safe. And that's why the trials for children tend to be a bit smaller and it could potentially be faster. But again, you can't rush the immune system. You can't do that at all. So we need kids who are vaccinated in those trials to complete their course and then make sure they're okay. And then we can make sure it's safe for everyone else. What message do you have, Omar, for those who may be listening and feel confused anxiety over the announcement yesterday? I think what we should all know is that we are extremely fortunate and lucky that our current vaccines are continuing to work against variants of concern. Now, they only issue is that with these variants of concern, you tend to need more antibodies. And that's generally what the data tends to be pointing towards. And you get that with your second dose. So I think it's important to, you know, try to get your second dose because while you do have some protection with your first dose, a second dose is super important for these variants. And we don't want to give the virus any more room to evolve so that this doesn't become the case anymore. So really talk to it. And really the only time you know, don't make this decision in a vacuum. Talk to your doctor. And there are hard stops to mixing. If you are actually allergic to an ingredient in one of the other vaccines, you shouldn't take it. And that's a conversation with your doctor. So please don't make the decision in a vacuum. If you're not an individual doing this. You are talking to your doctor, and they are helping you get through this. Dr. Omar Khan with us, Assistant Professor with the Institute of Biomedical Engineering and Department of Immunology with the University of Toronto. Doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Take care, everybody. Here comes the commentary. We are all too familiar with the mixed messaging around vaccination during this global pandemic. The National Advisory Committee on Immunization contradicted what Health Canada would advise at least six times that I can remember. Now we have the World Health Organization's top scientists telling us not to do exactly what Canadians have been told to do by officials here, that being mixed vaccines. To clarify, the World Health Organization is saying the drug companies did not test mixing, but a few countries, including Spain and Germany, are studying it on an ongoing basis and have deemed it safe. 
But let's remember, we are mixing vaccines because we didn't have any mass vaccination until May, let alone enough for choice. We are mixing vaccines because we didn't have enough not to do so. The same reason we delayed giving the second dose, instead choosing to vaccinate more with the first dose and delaying the second. Maybe Canadians should consider this as we again are becoming quite smug and gloating in our vaccination participation compared to other countries, rather than the cost of this journey and the time it has taken to get us here. I'm Scott Thompson. I won't personally be going to any indoor restaurant or any gym or any environment with indoor people unmasked until my under-12 child has been vaccinated, and I'm going to make no exceptions for that. I think we just need way higher vaccination rate, excellent as it is. And the main thing for me is that under 12 group. That's a vulnerable group. And to simply say blithely, oh, kids and COVID are fine. Uh, you know, COVID's not a big deal for kids. This is all fine. That's just not true. And there's plenty of data, not in Canada, because we haven't studied children. We haven't paid much attention to them. But elsewhere, the UK in particular, um, we see a lot of evidence of long haul COVID in kids. Dr. Colin Furness, epidemiologist on the Kelly Cotrera Show at 640 in Toronto, talking about kids. And as things start to open up and uh, adults uh, slow, those, uh, I guess, 12 plus, uh, teens and adults uh, start to get vaccinated in, in, in accommodating their second dose. Over 50% of Canadians uh, have done so. Where does this leave the kids? Uh, and this is the question we're going to uh, try to answer uh, in this segment. Uh, we, meaning those 12 plus teens and adults, uh, getting vaccinated as of May, lots of vaccine coming in. We saw mass vaccination clinics. Now, uh, it's not uncommon to see Hamilton has a walk up clinic. Uh, first, second dose, whatever you want. Uh, no appointment needed. Just get in there and, uh, and get her done. So we've certainly come a long way. And as we see things start to open up, uh, are we forgetting about the kids and meaning 12 and under or under 12 who uh, have not been vaccinated. Obviously, it is not approved yet by the manufacturers, uh, although the study is on ongoing and the research is underway. And uh, as soon as that becomes available, and we expect that relatively soon, whether that's by the beginning of school, uh, that might be pushing it a little bit. Let's bring in Dr. Martha Fulford, pediatric infectious disease specialist at McMaster Children's Hospital and Hamilton Health Sciences and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, thanks. How are you? I'm doing good, thanks. So, uh, doctor, obviously, uh, Canadians in a pretty positive mood at this point as more and more of us are getting vaccinated. Uh, I believe it's, uh, 79% of uh, those eligible have got their first dose and uh, it's about six, just under 70% of all Canadians and uh, obviously over just over 50% now with the second dose, but that's eligible people. That, that doesn't include those 12 and under. What are your feelings about that as, as we start to open things up? Are, are the kids vulnerable here? This is a very interesting question because I, I think it's pretty clear from Canada as well as around the world, that COVID is a disease that uh, essentially in terms of severity strikes uh, the older part of our population and certain comorbidities, but again, predominantly in the older part of our population. I mean, anybody can look up the numbers. So it is not a pediatric disease and it's not just Ontario, but you can look at the UK, you can look at Israel, you can look at all the United States, you can look at the rest of Canada. And so I guess when we think of the vac vaccination program, 
the question really comes back to what is our ultimate objective. And it has, we have to be very clear, COVID is not disappearing. Uh, unfortunately, COVID is here to stay. It will become what we call an endemic virus as opposed to pandemic. So it'll be one of our background seasonal viruses. So are we trying to prevent severe disease, hospitalization, and death? Because if that's our objective, we have very much accomplished this by, by with our current vaccination program. And so I'm not clearly opposed to vaccination. I mean, after all, I'm an infectious disease physician. But I also think we have to be a little bit, uh, you know, maybe take a step back and think, what is it exactly we're scared of? And, and what are we trying to accomplish? Because I'm actually not that worried about the children. The the vast majority actually have no symptoms at all. Uh, and that's the whole issue with asymptomatic uh, infection. They, they were so mild, they had nothing. And so I would like us to actually learn a lot from what's going over in, uh, in other jurisdictions. I think we can look at Israel, for example. They're ahead of us in terms of vaccination. And they really vaccinated their 16-plus population and are now just doing... Um, 12 to 15. We can look at Europe, where in fact, most countries are not even vaccinating teenagers, and get a pretty good sense of what can be done safely and what happens as we reopen. So we can learn very easily from other jurisdictions. So I'm actually probably less worried about children as a somebody who, who, who deals with children than some people are. And, and it's going to be a learning curve. I think there's a lot of anxiety out there. We have been shut down for a very long time in Ontario. And so I think it's going to be cautious steps, but I would be less worried about the children than I am about our seniors, to be honest. Um, I, I would say that the, the, most people would agree with that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, again, it's not a case of who's more uh, yeah. at danger, who is less at danger, but how much at danger are the young kids. Uh, one epidemiologist said he was concerned about the long-term effects yeah. of this disease yeah. on kids. Your thoughts? I, I hear that a lot, and, and again, it's take a step back, and if we look at the studies that have actually had control groups, where we look at children who have had COVID, we look at children who are actually negative, and these are serological tests. They do the blood work. So when we actually look at, at those tests, there's really actually not a lot of difference between the kids with COVID and without COVID who've got a lot of symptoms. It's a very difficult time children have been confined. They've missed out on a lot of milestones. Uh, we have a lot of, of overriding reasons why there might be problems in children. And this is not to say that we don't see post-infectious syndrome. So long-haul COVID or long COVID is what somebody like me refers to as a post-infectious syndrome. All viruses, um, pretty much, I think, uh, can cause post-infectious syndromes. We can certainly see it after influenza. We can see it after enteroviruses. We see it after a lot of the other respiratory viruses. So this isn't a unique situation with COVID, the, the, the reality of post-infectious syndromes. The question is, are we seeing it more frequently? And it, it actually is probably not. It's just that we're seeing them all at once. And so it feels overwhelming. And so I... I would be cautious and want to actually say, I think we need proper studies with actual serology and not just self-reported studies of symptoms because that's there's a lot of bias, there's a lot of, of subjectivity when you ask people to do self-reported symptoms of whether or not they feel short of breath or if they feel sad or if they feel anxious. So there's a lot, it's a very complicated situation. So we very clearly have uh, children and adults who are, who are experiencing post-infectious syndromes. 
The question that is a little bit unclear for me at the moment, and, and this is where I think it's important to have proper studies with control groups, is whether it's actually any more frequent with COVID than with any other virus. But again, how do we balance it? Is do we actually, you know, really say that we are that that this is more dangerous than any other virus we've ever dealt with, and we we refuse to let children participate in life? I think it's it's there's never going to be zero risk, and I guess it's for individuals as how much risk is is okay. Um, but as a Honestly, I'm not sure it's going to be more common than it is with, with other respiratory viruses, and it's an evolving story, but we are definitely studying it. And my, my, ten, my expectation and that of my colleagues is we actually don't think it's necessarily that much more common than with other viruses. I think it's just we are much more aware of it than, than some of our colleagues, and it's become public knowledge now that post-infectious syndrome sometimes occur. What would you say to families who would have members that are under 12? For example, I have kids that are teenagers. The youngest is 14, uh, but has friends with uh, families with, with, with kids that are under 12. And I've heard anecdotally that some parents don't want kids who aren't vaccinated uh, over to their house because they've got kids under 12 that aren't vaccinated uh, uh, obviously in the family. How do you address that? Well, if it was my family, I would let the kids come over. I think yeah. we have to really be a little bit realistic in exactly what we're scared of. And, and I am com- comfortable enough as an infectious disease physician to say that we have enough adults vaccinated, rates are low enough in our community that I am not worried if um, I have a mix of children what for me I was trying to avoid, and the reason I am so pro-vaccine, is I wanted to avoid severe disease, hospitalization, and death. I wanted to decrease the severity of this, but I'm also being very pragmatic in, in acknowledging that COVID is not going to disappear. And if it's just a mild infection in the community, I'm significantly less concerned. And this is a difficult message. We've been so... Um, yeah. I'm going to say almost obsessed with case counts, with case counts, with case counts. That is very difficult to people now to think, okay, wait a minute, what do you mean cases don't count? But we really do need to decouple cases from hospitalizations and, and start to think about what, what we're trying to achieve as a community. And, and it's, it's difficult because cases are going to go up again in, in the fall. This is what happens with respiratory viruses. But if the cases are mild cases in the community – and we don't see the attendant increase in hospitalizations, we don't have a surge and we're not overwhelmed, that is actually how we're going to le- learn to coexist. And so it's going to be baby steps, I think, for people, but but we're going to have to learn to coexist, I'm afraid. Do we need some sort of guidelines a- as to uh, address this situation with those I, under 12, or is, it a ca- or is it a case of let kids be, and as long as well, the rest of us are vaccinated? So... If you were in British Columbia, if you were in Alberta, or if you were in Saskatchewan today, the answer is just let kids be. Yeah. Because, of course, they have, you know, we have parts of Canada that have said the vaccines have worked in doing exactly what we wanted them to do, which was control the severity of the pandemic. We have accomplished that, and we can move on. So there are parts of Canada who have already said and have already made the decision to just let kids be. And so I, I think in Ontario, where we have been much more cautious, and, and it's pretty clear that we are very slow to open up compared to other jurisdictions, uh, that we could, 
easily look at, at our counterparts in British Columbia and realize that actually kids can just be left to be. I mean, British Columbia kept schools open. They didn't shut down outdoor activities. There were there were some restrictions. They did. We should were, clarify that they they yeah. they didn't shut down during the third wave, but they have been shut down. We we've, we've already oh, clarified. June of yeah, last yeah, year. They, they, yeah, the last yeah. time they shut down was June of 2020. Yeah. They never shut down again after tw- um, September of this year, of last year, I should say. Correct. Yeah. 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 So so to be fair, no. Last year, at the beginning, that's a whole different conversation. We did not yeah. know what we were dealing with. So so I so what happened in the spring of 2020 when we were still learning is very different. So, so I, I have no concerns whatsoever. I mean, but I think we. Can so that being said, knowledge. Yeah. So that being said, doctor, do um, do kids need masks heading back to school? Well, again, I guess it's what you know. What are you trying to achieve with the masks, right? Um, if we have low community spread, we have the vulnerable vaccinated, and we uh, have you know adults and the teachers vaccinated. That, that that's a reasonable question to ask, and not uh, you know it's pretty clear that. British Columbia, Alberta, and Saskatchewan have already said masks, masks optional. All mandates have been removed. And so it's a question that, that I think one could ask. What advice do you have for parents with kids that are under 12? Especially if you've got the mixed family where you've got, you know, the majority of the family or perhaps all of the family fully vaccinated except for those kids. Let the kids be the kids. Yeah. Yeah, honestly, they're not at risk from COVID. The risks from the long COVID, if we actually look at the objective studies where we actually look at serology, is not, I mean, it is a low risk, but there's never zero risk. And, and I'm going to say that about any activity. But, but if we really are worried, you can look at activities that are much higher risk to children than COVID just getting in a car. I mean, anybody yeah. can look up the numbers. You go online and look yeah. up the numbers from, you know, what COVID has done to children and what car accidents do to children. And again, I'm not trying to minimize the severity of COVID for no. adults because it has been horrendous. But one of the remarkably good news stories, and it's a story that we have not celebrated the way we should have, is the degree to which children have been spared. This was not a disease of pediatrics. Good point. And we're uh, lucky. I mean, we're well, lucky. It, it was remarkable. Uh, but before I let you go, uh, Doctor, I, I uh, have to ask you your thoughts on the information out of the World Health Organization yesterday. We're starting to get more clarity today uh, in that it is that the manufacturers do not do testing uh, in regard to mixing their drugs with other manufacturers. This is left for health departments to do and such. But your comments on uh, what came out of the World Health Organization yesterday? It, that was very um, so. It was actually about a, an eight to nine minute pr- uh, media breath. Uh, briefing and the comment of course was a lot more nuanced than what suddenly was being blasted around the world <laughs> which was that individuals and drug companies should not be deciding on, on regimens but that it should be up to pu- public health agencies based on the available data they have to make a decision with regards to mixing and matching and that we are still learning uh, and the other comment they made which I so, so in other words like uh, we're comfortable in Canada with the mixing and matching. We actually think it's fine. And, and in some cases, for example, the AstraZeneca followed by one of the um, mRNA vaccines, uh, the studies that have been done are actually showing that may even confer better immunity mm-hmm. by, by doing the, the mix and match. Um, but the other thing the World Health said that it, and I, she may have actually used the word dangerous, I'd have to say, but, but quite correctly saying that countries like Canada that have got the degree of vaccination that we have should not be discussing boosters 
when we still have countries where they have had zero vaccination while healthcare workers are dying. Yeah. Because if we really want this pandemic to finish, the vaccine, vaccine equity and access to vaccines internationally is absolutely critical. And, and for us to start you know, giving boosters or having that conversation when we've already got the privilege of having so many as a vaccine, we know that the two doses confer excellent immunity, that, that it is not appropriate for us to start talking about mixing and, and adding third or fourth doses when there are healthcare workers and, and other people dying in other countries. And so I actually agree with that World Health message. It was just a very nuanced message, and unfortunately, the, the only thing that came out was that the World Health says it's dangerous to mix and match, which mm-hmm. was, of course, not at all what they were saying. It was a far more complicated message, but it did, unfortunately, get misinterpreted. Uh, interesting question from a listener. What about kids under 12 being allowed to visit newborns? Uh, well, neither newborns nor kids under 12 are particular risk for COVID, so I guess it's an individual thing. What I will say, though, is anybody who's symptomatic with any illness, and this would have been in my advice pre-COVID, should not be should be not visiting anybody until they're better. And yeah. so any child with symptoms should not be visiting a newborn. I mean, that's a very different conversation, right? Um, so symptomatic kids, please keep them home and not mixing with anybody, quite frankly. But asymptomatic children, particularly with our numbers as low as they are right now, again, it's a comfort level, but I, I, like, I guess I'm going to repeat, I think kids should be allowed to be kids. Dr. There Martha are viruses, Fol- sorry, nope, there is go a ahead. virus nope. um, going called RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, um, which actually can cause quite significant disease in, in babies. It's nothing to do with COVID. But this is where symptomatic children, if they have what seems like a cold, any symptoms? No, don't don't have them be with a baby. Mm-hmm. Dr. Martha Fulford with his pediatric infectious disease specialist at McMaster Children's Hospital and Hamilton Health Sciences saying, uh, if everybody's healthy and not showing signs, let the kids be. Uh, Martha, thank you so much for the time My and pleasure. insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Penelicate tribe says over 160 undocumented graves were found at the site of the former Cooper Island Indian Industrial School off the coast of Vancouver Island. Global News has reached out to the tribe for more details. The school was run by the Catholic Church from 1890 until 1969. The federal government took over in 69. The school closed in 1975. This discovery is the latest reported in Canada. Back in May, the remains of an estimated 215 children were found at a former residential school site in Kamloops. It was followed up by discoveries in Brandon, Manitoba, the Cowess's First Nation in Saskatchewan, and in Cranbrook, B.C. David Bowles, Global News. Send me a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And the phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Uh, I can't find an email that I got yesterday, um, but it it was uh, after we talked about this issue in regard to uh, more and more graves being found at former residential schools, uh, obviously the latest in British Columbia again. And this is going to continue across the country for a long time. This is not the last, and and we know that. There's like 150 of these sites across the country. But it was interesting on, you know, uh, I received quite a lengthy note that talked about how uh, this person thought we were not providing balance 
uh, in this story, uh, whether it was, you know, a, a lot of these kids dying from other diseases such as tuberculosis, which were prevalent in this time, and, and, and constantly used the word balance through the conversation, to which my reply to this listener was, I think we've heard about 150 years of this balance. And I, I don't know if we need to hear more of the balance from a government perspective. What we need to be doing is listening to the other side of the story and provide the other balance. But if there's something that you think that I am not being balanced on, send me a note and I will ask the guest the question that you want addressed. Uh, but again, um, People are becoming more and more um, agitated, uh, feeling uncomfortable, uh, upset, as this practice will continue. It's it's not going to get any any better. It's going to get worse before it gets better. And many people are struggling with how to, uh, those in the non-Indigenous community, how to handle this, how to accept this. And... What I really think the message I'm getting from the people I've talked to, the experts I've talked to, both sides of this, um, whether indigenous or non-indigenous, is you got to listen. You have to listen to the stories, and they have to be told. Um, because this is what has been missing for the last 150 years. Or uh, if they've come up, we've certainly brushed them off. So if you don't believe I'm providing balance, then send me your question and I will ask to whatever uh, uh, expert we have on, whether it's on a pandemic or whether it's on indigenous issues. All right. Uh, as the news has mentioned, over 160 graves found at a former residential school on uh, BC Island. Patty Doyle Bedwell is with us, Native Studies instructor with Dalhousie University and with us now. Patty, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh, thank you, Scott, for having me. I'm fine. Thank you. Still uh, feeling, but I'm okay. Your thoughts on uh, what I mentioned before about how uh, a listener thought we were not providing balance. Um, balance means telling both sides of this story. Right. Um, and obviously for the last 150 years, uh, there hasn't been any balance. Uh, now it is time for us to listen. What advice do you have for Canadians who are obviously uncomfortable, obviously upset with this, and how do they process this moving forward? These are Canadians that are non-Indigenous. Well, I think that it's important to learn about the history of the residential schools. And, uh, you know, there have been, and I have, you know, I've heard of stories that people have said that they had a good experience there, but, you know, they weren't beaten or they weren't starved to death or, you know. Should we be telling those no stories? Life? Should well, we be telling those stories, Patty? Those stories. Well, if you read the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report, there are certainly lots of stories in there about survivors. They did, um, when the Truth and Reconciliation, before they finished their final report, they went all across Canada and held sessions in, every, in most major cities in Canada, talking to families, talking to survivors, um, about their experiences. And I don't know, um, you know, I guess there's, 
when I think about balance, I think about, um, you know, when you look at maybe an individual experience, I mean, certainly Senator Lynn Bayak, when she was in the Senate, talked about, you know, people having good experiences in the residential school. But when you think about the bigger issue, the the existence of the residential schools was basically to get rid of the Indian in the child. It was to get rid of the Indian problem. It was to civilize us. It was to take away our language, our culture. And that, there, I can't see a balance to that, except that that is just the truth. That is what they did. That was the goal of the whole system. So, you know, there may be individuals. I mean, it's like saying, well, maybe I was in a, in the, I was a, I was in the army and I was fighting a war in Afghanistan and I had a great experience. Well, it still may be, yeah bad for other people or maybe you know the bigger issue is the war and the violence and the what happened there so i think the whole story has to be told and i think when what what i see happening now with with people i'm talking about non-indigenous canadians is they're start you know one time they were shocked second time they were still shocked third time they were I think a little, starting to get a little bit overwhelmed. And then as more and more stories come out, it's starting to really make people question the government and the churches. You know, what did they do? What happened? And I think the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report um, is a great starting place for people to start talking about what happened because the whole system was created under the law of the Indian Act of 1876, of course, which still exists. The federal government had total control over our education, where we lived, what we did. They, many parents had no choice but to send their kids to these schools. And they were, And I guess um, one of the things that's mentioned in the Re- Truth and Reconciliation Report is that you know, there were communities that wanted their kids educated. Yeah. You know, they wanted them to have that. And that's how this whole thing started. It was about educating this community, and then something went horribly wrong. Well, their view and their, I mean, if you read the um, RCAP report, the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People, there is information in there on the residential schools, and there was a guy from the government, um, and he, from the Canadian government, he went to the United States in the late 1800s and visited all the industrial slash residential institutions in the U.S. that were educating uh, First Nations kids and came home and said, hey, this is a great idea. This is what we need to do. And if you read the government documents and see what they planned, this was all planned. So it wasn't just like some errant nun or errant priest that decided that they didn't like indigenous kids. This was a whole system that was set up to get rid of us. And yes, maybe some, you know, we don't know. And I, you know, I have to say that all these children that died, do we know how they died yet? No. Were there, there was lots of disease. There was kids that ran away. There were, um, sexual abuse, beatings. We don't know um, how they died, but the system itself was set up to get rid of us. And sometimes what happened is that um, 
they really accomplished that goal by these kids dying. I mean, at the most recent residential school where they found the bodies, there were, you know, they said 107 kids had died out of 254 kids. That, those are just the facts. So if you send a kid, say, today in 2021, and you sent your kid to a school, yeah. and half the kids had died in that school because of neglect, abuse, um, then, you know, would you want to send your kid there? I don't think so. So, you know, I always try to get people to think about it in the modern context, because it's still something that's happening today. The impact of residential school on our families and our communities has been severe. You know, and that and, really, and that really is the focal point here. Yeah. Um, you know, because I'm, I'm getting, e- I'm getting emails from people that are saying, well, you know, uh, all of these kids died, or a lot of these kids, or the majority of these kids died uh, during times when tuberculosis and other diseases were were ravishing the country. Um, what do you say to people trying to use that point to justify these deaths? Well, when I was when I was doing my thesis way back in 2000 uh, on residential schools, I spoke with an elder in Halifax named Elsie Basque, and uh, she um, she told me that the schools, um, the residential schools, were not run like the other schools, that the there was a, he, she was a teacher and she'd actually taught at one of the other schools in Nova Scotia where the kids had good meals. They, you know, it was clean. It was, they were treated well. Um, so if you read, then if you read um, John Malloy's book, A National Crime, about the residential schools, they will, you know, he said very clearly that, you know, they brought kids into that school that were sick on purpose. They, so there were kids that had TB. They didn't have adequate health care. And the other thing that hasn't really been talked about very much is that, you know, the government performed medical experiments on our kids in the school. So, yes, it was those times. And you could say, well, yes, everybody got TB and everybody, you know, died at a young age or whatever. But that there were significant differences between how the schools, say, in Nova Scotia for non-Indigenous kids were run as opposed to the residential school because the residential schools were a federal responsibility and the federal government had partnerships with the churches to implement the policies that they wanted done in the schools, which was to get rid of the Indian and the child. And I know that people like to think about this stuff. It's like, oh, it happened so far in the past. It's not really important. But many of these schools didn't close until 1996, right? So we're not talking, we're talking within, say, the Shubenagate School in Nova Scotia closed in 1966, 67. That's within my lifetime. So we're not talking ancient history here. We're seeing the what happened within our lifetimes and the impact of those negative, like uh, the the bit that you played before I came on, where you know it was not an educational institution. It was, well, it was an institution, and they tried to get rid of your language, your culture, your connection to your family, to your community, your spirituality. All of those things were aimed at on purpose and tried to be destroyed. 
And that's not how other schools are run, right? So, and as Elsie Bath told me, and there are many discussions that we had about schooling and teaching that, you know, that didn't happen in Nova Scotia with the non-Indigenous schools, but it did happen in Shubenagadee. And we're looking, there's, you know, Roger Lewis is one of the archaeologists that's looking um, and doing all the scientific investigation on uh, and partnering with St. Mary's University to look for uh, unmarked graves. And he's a survivor himself. So, we're not talking ancient history here. When I went to law school and I graduated in 1993, there were one, two, three, three people who I graduated with who were residential school survivors. So it's not ancient history. And I think that's one of the most important things that non-Indigenous Canadians have to understand. This is not ancient history. This is happening now we are you know you're walking among people who have survived and experienced and now we're seeing the children who didn't survive and their bodies being found you were talking about uh you know um uh, over 100 years ago people heading to the united states figuring Mm -hmm. out or trying to figure out what was the best solution here how has the u.s uh, address this? Is is there a difference between how they're handling this or handled this compared to Canada? I think there is a difference. I think um, with what's happened in Canada, um, I think that in the United States, they're starting to investigate the same, looking at the grounds and looking at the lost children, um, and they're starting to do that. But it was a very similar system in the United States. Like They haven't had a truth and reconciliation commission in the United States. Um, And now the Department of the Interior in the U.S. is led by an Indigenous woman. And so she's making um, commitments to pursue things like missing and murdered Indigenous women, which they hadn't done in the United States before. So um, I think that things are going to start moving. Um, And the other thing, too, I guess it's important for non-Indigenous Canadians to understand is that this residential school um, issue is getting international coverage. Yeah, yeah I remember when I remember yeah. the, the I remember the news conference, uh, and I believe it was, uh, and I may be wrong here, but it was Kamloops, uh, I mm-hmm. believe, uh, and they when they first announced this and held a news conference, the first two questions I, I don't the first two questions were international questions. Uh, yes. The first one I remember being from Germany. Uh, yeah. of all places so yeah it certainly has grabbed Al-Jazeera. international attention yeah absolutely yeah, you're right it was Al Jazeera yeah. you're right yeah um so, so it is uh, getting international attention in the United States I think they have a lot to answer for as well because they started these schools these they call them industrial schools mm-hmm. and um there were a lot of kids that went to those schools so they have a lot to answer for as well so are they ahead of us or behind us on this? Oh, they're behind us. I think yeah. they're definitely behind us because, like I said, they haven't had a Truth and Reconciliation right. Commission set up, and uh, they haven't, um, like maybe individual tribes have, like Carlisle Industrial School was one of the most talked about ones in the U.S., but there were many others. Um, and, you know, in most schools, you know, non-Indigenous kids went to didn't have electric chairs in the basement. Wow. You know, like, so you need to, people need to think about 
well, yeah, maybe somebody had a good experience, but the system itself was was traumatizing and genocidal. And the bodies that have been found, you know, there's a lot of talk right now about crimes against humanity. The new elected uh, national chief is talking about that, <clears throat> doing these investigations. And, you know, the people who are responsible, the Canadian government and the churches, have to be held accountable, just like for any crime. Like if they, <clears throat> if the child had TB and the child died, we know that there were, um, we know the health care in the residential schools was substandard. Dental care, nutrition, there were medical experiments performed on kids. We know that. It's been documented. So what sort of medical experiments were done? What sort of medical experience, well, experiments were done? There was a person that did a thesis at the University of Alberta, and uh, he was involved when he was a kid, um, when um, they were studying the Simeon 40 virus, and I'm not, I'm not a scientist, so I don't know all the details, but he found out when the cohort of people that he was in the residential schools with, they got, there was a cohort that was moved out to a really nice house, they had a color TV, they had really nice food, and and it was really special, and uh, they had education in that place. And out of that cohort of people, about 30 years later, they started getting this particular type of brain cancer. Well, the person that wrote this thesis was a scientist. He was Cree. So he started investigating it because there were people that were dying. And then he got diagnosed with it himself. And I was at a conference in Vancouver on Indigenous health, and he, his thesis supervisor gave the presentation on this experiment that they did, and they found through autopsies and postmortems that one of the things that was in the, these people's brains was the simian 40 virus. And they found out as well that the two, the two people who were supposedly teachers at the school were actually scientists from Nazi Germany that had come here after the war and were doing these experiments on the kids. And, they, they, and I remember the supervisor saying, well, um, he had, he was very, the kids were happy because they got to eat sugar cubes every day. They had a nice bed, they had a nice house, they had good food, but they were experimenting on them. And that's documented. And it's a master's uh, science uh, thesis that was done at the University of Alberta. And when he presented his thesis, the dean of the medical school burst into tears. And they did experiments in Nova Scotia on, um, they were trying to find out, Dalhousie University was doing experiments in the early 30s on residential school kids and other kids uh, on the reserve about their blood type and whether this proved they were Indian or something crazy. But um, my mother was one of the kids that was listed in that experiment. So that was, and that's two I know about, there may be more. We know they had electric chairs. St. Anne's Residential School had an electric chair in their. Basement. What would be the purpose of that? How do they? How is that explained? What's that? The electric an, chair or the blood yeah. test? Electric, the electric chair. chair. Well, they had a, it set up for punishment for the kids. It was like the ultimate punishment if you, you know, if you didn't do the right thing, didn't eat your gruel, didn't, you know make the, you know, roast beef for the priests, do your chores, talk back, you could be punished. 
And that was very well documented. And the Ontario police actually did an investigation into that situation. And uh, one of the, one of the things that that St. Anne's residential school survivors are trying to do is uh, get those records from the OPP, and uh, they have yet to receive them, and they're being fought in court by the government. So uh, obviously, we've only got we've got a limited amount of time left oh, here, I know, Patty. I, I just no, no, that's great. No, I, I want because we need to hear this. Um, but this is going to keep happening there. You know, it, it this is. is going to sweep right the way across the country as, you know, we search for more and more of these graves. Uh, are you are you concerned this will lose impact as another, another, another? I another, am always another. concerned about that, because when you start getting up to 1600 kids, <clears throat> and then people will start, it'll start numbing them out or they won't be as interested. And that's what I am concerned about that. Um, I I think one of the things that um, needs to happen is, uh, you know, we need to take political action. If there's anything that um, non-Indigenous peoples can do, people can do is learn the stories, read the history and take political action. Write a letter to your MP. Write a letter to Justin Trudeau. Write letters to the Indigenous Services Minister or Carolyn Bennett and and say this has to be taken care of. And not just providing money to look for bodies, but also providing support for healing, getting the Aboriginal Healing Foundation back, getting um, support for families. They have to do that because they, they, they have to take responsibility. Patty Doyle Bedwell with us, Natives Studies instructor with Dalhousie University, over 160 graves found at a former residential school uh, uh, in B.C. Patty, as always, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. For those of us who have recently got to go to a patio and have something to eat, I felt weird the first time I went out. We did this like last week. And uh, went to a patio and, and you know, just everybody did a great job doing their part. And But what I found hilarious is people were talking to other people in the patio who they didn't even know just because everybody was so giddy to get out again. You know, somebody's talking from behind their plexiglass thing that they had set up to separate the tables. Uh, so, you know, and again, um, the, the, the service was great because you, you can tell uh, the servers are dying to get out there, dying to, to earn some cash and, and to get back to what they love to do. Uh, and especially with restaurants, it's not about cooking for everybody. It's about watching the experience because most of us go to, to a restaurant for some sort of a special occasion and they get to be a part of all of that. So, uh, as we're at this, uh, patio and such, you know, you just feel obligated to tip more. At least I did because they've been out for so long and they're doing a bang up job trying to keep uh, now, which is becoming a rush, uh, in control. So, you know, and, and, and I felt for perfectly justified in doing so considering, you know, it was, it was a great experience. But tipping has obviously been an issue. And it's coming up again, which is kind of weird during a global pandemic or coming out of a global pandemic. Um, but people are now discussing tips and where tips fit into 
this equation. Is it time to include tips in menu prices as we do reopen from COVID-19? Or will we see the opposite where there'll be more tipping? Uh, let's talk to Poppy Riddle about this, research associate with the Agri-Food uh, Analytics, Analytics Lab, faculty of management at Dalhousie University and with us now. Poppy, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, I'm very well. Thank you for having me on the show. How come you think we're having this discussion now, Poppy? You know, I looked at sort of the um, the history of these conversations and found articles even as far back as 1968 uh, out of the United States um, arguing against it um, and citing some of the challenges that it creates. Um, and so it's been ongoing. Dr. Charlebois has written several articles over the years. Yeah. And also there's um, Bruce McAdams out of University of Guelph, uh, who has also advocated for against tipping as a practice in restaurants. So it's been going on for a while, but you're right. We are hitting another surge of it now as we come out of the pandemic. And I think Canadians are starting to kind of question, what do we want to put back into practice as our normal? So uh, just because of post-pandemic or, you know, as close as we can get to it, I guess, uh, there's going to be new templates for lots of industries. This just another one. Yeah, and I think also in Canada, we've had uh, recently there's the minimum wage increases, and that's that's paralleled in the United States as well. So that's also businesses are trying to reevaluate their compensation models. Uh, one thing I always found uh, interesting, you know, I'm a guy in, in my mid-50s here, or oh, maybe late, anyway, that's irrelevant. Um, I remember when tipping was like 10%. Mm-hmm. And then it went to 15%. And then if mm-hmm. you're really generous, it would go to 20 and in some cases, even 25. Although I must admit, I have never tipped 25%. Um, uh, I don't know what that says about me. Uh, but what I could never understand is, you know, is this about percentage of the bill? And why does that keep going up uh, when, for the most part, restaurant prices go up? So that would increase the tip. What, what is the discussion around increasing the portion of that bill that the serving staff receives? How did it get from 10 to 20? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we did some of the questions we did ask in this survey was to see what people ex- think the expectation is to tip versus what they actually tip. And most people expect around 15%, although there were considerable populations also at 18 and 20%. And then people on average tip a little over the expectation. So the average is about 15%. The expectation is just a little over 15%. Um, but, you know, there was movements recently uh, for tip the bill, for example, where people were advocating 100% tips. Um, and so I don't think that that's caught quite a lot of traction, but it was certainly newsworthy for a while. So uh, there's there's been opposite reaction to this. In other words, tip more. Well, there has been. I think people are responding to understanding that their favorite restaurant is, you know, they're struggling. They're taking Hurting, on yeah. more loans to get by through the, through the pandemic. Um, they haven't been there. They're lacking that connection. So I think people are uh, responding and wanting to tip more. Canadian savings rates through the pandemic have been really high. Uh, I looked at Statistics Canada for that, and, you know, it spiked right up to above 20%, whereas on average – it's less than 2%. So right now people may have that financial flexibility to tip a little more and to, you know, like you were saying earlier uh, before I came on, reconnect with their favorite restaurant, the servers and the places they love to go. 
You can certainly see that, that people will be more generous with tipping as these establishments open up, reopen up, Mm -hmm. simply because they've been locked down for so long. Will this continue or will this kind of die off as we get out of this? (laughs) Well, as a social social norm in Canada, it is really well ingrained. And then there's, you know, there's roughly a third of our survey population, um, which, uh, you know, they think, Tipping is great. They consider it generosity. They feel it's a beneficial behavior. And there's about a third that are against it and would like to see it prohibited or regulated. I think what we're doing in reintroducing this conversation about tipping is saying at the point of tipping, we're connect, you know, you and I as consumers are connecting with our server. We're connecting with our favorite restaurant. What we're unaware of and what's not evident when we're tipping are these other issues that tip dependent incomes have to deal with. So they don't have, you know, there's inequality in wages between front of house and back of house. There's instability in income because it fluctuates. And so it's difficult for them to get loans, for example. Uh, There can be staff rivalry, discrimination. um, And even, you know, there was a Harvard Business report that of really high percentages of sexual harassment attributed to tipping. Um, And it tends to create a high degree of turnover in the industry. So it's right about 70% as reported by Restaurants Canada. That's really high turnover. And so there's a lot of evidence pointing at tipping as contributing to those situations, not solely, but certainly contributing to them. And we think if tipping was part of, if that compensation model was in the food prices, um, we would help to, as consumers, to alleviate some of those issues that restaurant workers are enduring. We have certainly heard that many in the business have left because of the pandemic and such and uh, and have gone on, and there's a shortage as these establishments start to open up. Will that change the discussion because there is such demand now? That's a great question. And, you know, um, I don't have the answer to that, but I'm planning on talking, and I do talk to my favorite takeout places because uh, I tend to favor takeout places. Um, and I let them know, it's like, hey, if you guys ever feel like getting rid of tipping and, and, you know, rebalancing the compensation model with food prices, I would support you in that. Um, whether this is a long-term trend, we're still analyzing the data. A lot of people that are wanting to tip more right now, they're happy to do so. And so there is still strong social support for tipping in Canada. But we have done surveys in the past about um, tipping alternatives, whether it's price increases or service charges. And uh, those have also had strong support from those surveyed in the past. So it's really quite divided at the moment. Uh, Considering where we are with COVID-19, is it time to have this discussion? Because uh, it really hasn't settled down, and it's going to be, I would guess, unstable for a period of time, uh, feast or famine, because of the Mm. situation. Yeah, I think it points back to the the jobs, you know, that haven't been filled yet. Uh, Restaurants Canada reported there's still over 300,000 jobs that haven't been filled. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with such high turnover, with so many people leaving, there's going to be new people coming into the restaurant industry. You know, what we're saying with this report and with previous research is that there was equality in wages. People could depend on the restaurant industry more as a career choice um, rather than, 
you know, so an interim job, for example. Is that is that perhaps what's needed here, Poppy, in order to stabilize this industry? Because obviously we've seen how volatile it is. Give us some of the, you know, we certainly know the pro- the pros of tipping because, you know, it's a quick way to make a, a lot of money if you're really good at it and you've got a, you've got a strong establishment. What are some of the downsides? You spoke of this earlier, some of the downsides of tipping. And, and maybe you can shed some light in how this all gets divided because you said the front of the restaurant versus the back. Um, right. do, tips, do tips within the wait staff? stay within the individual uh, wait staff or do those go into a pool? How, how does this generally work? It's a little different from restaurant to restaurant. Um, and there's provincial laws about what uh, an owner of a restaurant uh, can do with tips. And so that varies. But generally, your server gets the tips. And so there is tip pooling in which all the servers pool their tips together. And that helps sort of equate, um, sort of balance out, you know, good days and bad days. Um, and then there's other places where they put a, a tips in to kick back to the kitchen and to the wash staff and to the other support staff um, because they're also paid uh, low wages as well. So the tipping then can uh, be used to help others in the restaurant as well. But it varies from restaurant to restaurant. It's not there's not a standard and it's not consistent. Um, and so that's where the equality in wages comes in. Uh, Bruce McAdams talks about in a TED Talk uh, that some people even go into the restaurant industry with a sort of mercenary approach to it. And they're just trying to get as much tips as possible and get in and get out. And that's not really facilitating, you know, career management or teamwork um, that a restaurant manager is trying to build within their restaurant. You know, they, they want to build stability and they want their team to work together collaboratively to provide not only the best food, but the best service for their customers possible. Will the market and the industry figure this out, or does this take some sort of government intervention of some sort? It, 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 will the market decide what works for it? I think the market. Uh, can respond a lot faster than policy can. Policy takes a long time to get through, and it takes a lot of evidence. Um, So it's expensive in a sense. I think for me, it makes most sense to talk to my local restaurants that I like to support and and to let them know I would support them with higher food prices, you know, for a balanced compensation model. Um, But I totally understand that some restaurants are going to look at their economics Maybe their staff has a great experience with tipping and they don't have all of these issues. So when I talk about these issues, you know, that's sort of the restaurant industry as a whole. But not every server experiences that and not every restaurant experiences that. And so if there are restaurants whose economics say, you know, we need this compensation model and their staff support it and their customers support it, then keep tipping. You know, other restaurants may say that, hey, we need to do something because we need more, better revenue control and we need better career management and teamwork. Let's let's get rid of tipping. You know, how many of our customers would support that? So right now, the, our survey is saying, yeah, there's over, I think it was 36, 37 percent that would support moving away from tipping. How do the servers feel about this? Because anytime you talk to a server or anybody who's been in the business, it's like, I'm working here because the tips are great. Um, I'm hearing so what's great about uh, these opportunities to talk on the radio um, and to get feedback from the conversation article or from the newspaper articles is I'm getting these stories from people. Um, and so I'm hearing great stories from servers who, you know, they were a server for 30 years and they loved it and they loved their customers and they had nothing but good things to say. I'm also hearing the other side of the story where it was 
terrible for them. You know, they felt really singled out. They felt really disadvantaged. They felt like they they could never really get a grasp of where their income was. Um, so I'm hearing it on both sides of the story. Sorry, I'm hearing both sides of the story simultaneously with all this feedback. And I guess it would also, uh, a major determining factor here would be, is this a temporary position for you where you're just looking to make some cash, whether you're a student or what have you, or you're looking for this as a career? Yeah, I mean, that's that's what uh, Bruce McAdams is advocating. So uh, University of Guelph, uh, they're running the uh, Restaurant Sustainability Project, and that's what they're advocating by eliminating tips as this cultural norm. It means that wages are more even. People can focus on, restaurant managers can focus on career management. Management. So somebody that's a server and gets experience over the years and is really awesome in their restaurant, they want to promote them to management. But generally the barrier is, is that management requires different hours, different commitment, different training. And some people don't want to move away from those tips because it can be lucrative. How much uh, does the increase in minimum wage that we're seeing just generally, um, how does that affect this, or is that minimal? There, so I don't know the answer to that question. That's an excellent question. The, there is a report that came out rather recently in 2021 that looked at the effect of the minimum wage increase in Canada um, on operations uh, in a restaurant. And it reports favorably on that. So it's, if I could summarize, it said that with the minimum wage increases, that it is, and the restaurant managers are responding favorably to the effect in the workplace. And so they're advocating for increased minimum wage so that they can eliminate tips. Poppy Riddle with us, research associate with the Agri-Food Analytics Lab, faculty of management at Dalhousie University, talking about tipping in restaurants, especially in a post-COVID-19 world. Thank you so much for the time. Be well. Yes, thank you, Scott, for having me on. I love the conversation. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.